This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. What the Democrats have done wrong and what they've done right in American history. For that, we turn to Michael Kazin. He teaches history at Georgetown. He edited Dissent magazine for 10 years. He's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Guardian, and The Nation. He's also written six books. The new one is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Last time we talked here, it was about democratic socialism in America. Michael Kazin, welcome back. Good to be here, John. Well, today we're not going to talk about politics for the last week. We're going to talk about politics for the last century. If you had to describe Democrats before FDR in a single sentence, what would you say? I would say they believed in egalitarian whiteness that uh, they were representing and tried to represent uh, the interests of majority of ordinary white men. And they did so successfully at some time, but clearly they were, like my friend Mike Tomaski has said in a recent book, a terrible party for everybody else for the most part, for Native Americans, um, for black people, um, and for many women as well, even though of course a lot of women supported their men in the Democratic Party as well. But um, really, the Democratic Party that we think of as a modern, more progressive party, more liberal party, is a party that really begins to form uh, in a really serious way in the 1930s. And where does your personal history with the Democrats begin? Well, I I seem to remember I used to talk to my uh, third grade um, <laughs> friends about why Adlai Stevenson uh, was a good candidate in 1956. But I do remember very well that I handed out leaflets for John Kennedy in 1960 on the streets of my hometown, Englewood, New Jersey, which is uh, uh, just a short bus ride from the George Washington Bridge uh, uh, next to New York City. Uh, and my parents were devout liberal Democrats, like lots of uh, Jews from New York in that area were. And so many ways, uh, even though I'm a leftist and uh, a democratic socialist, I've also been a capital D Democrat for most of my life. Have you always supported the Democratic candidate for president? Uh, not in 1968, when I was in a group uh, that you know well called Students for Democratic Society uh, when I was in college. And then uh, the Vietnam War turned me against the Democrats. Of course, the Vietnam War was a war being prosecuted by Democrats, Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic candidate in 68, Hubert Humphrey. So I joined a march uh, in Boston calling for uh, people to vote uh, in the streets, vote with your feet. Not to vote, in other words, uh, but to demonstrate instead. In 19, uh, uh, 1980, excuse me, um, even though I certainly 
you know, preferred Jimmy Carter to a degree to Ronald Reagan in that election. Uh, I was so fed up with Jimmy Carter's lousy presidency, his helping to ignite a new Cold War with the Soviet Union, uh, that I voted for a candidate most people probably never heard of uh, named Barry Commoner, a uh, left-wing environmentalist uh, who ran as a candidate for a new party called the Citizens Party, who got all of two, all of a quarter of a million votes. Our modern political history, as you say, begins really in 1936 with FDR's huge re-election victory that year. You call it the most complete victory in the history of partisan presidential elections. How did he do it? He did it by putting together a coalition, uh, a majority coalition, which is how Democrats uh, become a majority party. They put together for the first time, both white people and black people, because 1936, the first presidential election where a majority of black voters who were able to vote in the South, of course, most could not. For the first time, a uh, majority of black voters vote for the Democratic candidate instead of the Republican candidate. And they've done so in every election since. Also, the uh, union movement was surging in 1936. Uh, unions were organized in, in the auto uh, plants and steel mills and elsewhere. And most of the unions that were being formed did support FDR uh, and, and Democrats across the board. Uh, and that helped a lot, too. Also, a lot of people who just out of a job, who thought the Republican Party was the party that caused the Great Depression, voted for Democrats as well. Uh, and this was true of rural voters as well as uh, urban voters. So really, it was a really real cross-section of, uh, of Americans. And as a result, the Democrats had massive majorities in both houses of Congress and won every state except for Maine uh, and Vermont. And the next big transformative moment came in 1964, LBJ versus Goldwater. LBJ's victory then, it's still worth recalling. LBJ got 61.1%. That's actually more than Reagan got in 1980. His victory margin was 16 million votes. The new Senate for LBJ had 68 Democrats, more than two-thirds. So what can you do with a landslide of the, that proportion? You can pass Medicare. You can pass the war on poverty. And you can pass the Voting Rights Act, the late lamented Voting Rights Act. This was a huge transformative moment for American uh, history. But in 1966, in the midterms, uh, it was a disaster for the, for the Democrats and for LBJ what went wrong? What happened to the massive majority, supermajority that Johnson had created? A couple of things. First of all, the Vietnam War uh, was becoming unpopular. It wasn't yet unpopular among the majority, but it was becoming unpopular, including among a lot of liberal Democrats who didn't vote for Republicans, but some of them sat out the election. Also, the white backlash, the backlash against the Civil Rights Movement, against the Civil Rights Act. Uh, George Wallace, governor of Alabama, uh, was becoming more popular among a lot of white working class Democrats, not just in the South, but in the North as well. And the war on poverty was seen as, by a lot of Americans, as giving money to poor people who weren't working. One of the lessons that uh, Lyndon Johnson failed to learn from uh, his mentor, Franklin D. Roosevelt, was that the main programs that Roosevelt passed uh, and signed and Democrats uh, enacted under, in the New Deal were programs that were perceived as helping uh, the large majority of Americans. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in the 1960s, the main programs that most people heard about that the Great Society enacted, with the exception of Medicare, were programs that were perceived as helping only a minority of Americans. And of course, the anti-poverty program, though it helped all poor Americans to a degree, uh, was perceived, again, as helping mostly, mostly African-Americans. So um, white voters who felt that, you know, this was supposed to be their party and supposed to be their government, why was it helping people who were not like them? 
And, and that unfortunately uh, helped to produce a backlash. And that backlash was one of the things which helped to whittle down the Democratic majorities uh, in Congress in 1966. And the end elected Richard Nixon president in 1968. So 1968, historic event when the incumbent Democrat was forced to withdraw from his own reelection campaign by anti-war activists, including you, including me. So the story of 1968 in the, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago is well known. I knew nothing about the Democratic platform of 1968 until I read your book. Yeah, what's astonishing uh, is that the Democratic platform 68 was more uh, left-wing, uh, more of a sort of uh, social democratic platform uh, than than the Democratic platform had been ever before, including in 1936 when Franklin Roosevelt won this uh, landslide re-election, including in 64 when Lyndon Johnson won this huge landslide. It included, you know, uh, national health insurance for all, uh, guaranteed housing, guaranteed job for everybody who needed one. But it was completely overshadowed by the Vietnam War, by the split in the party over the war. Uh, Hubert Humphrey didn't even mention it in his in his acceptance speech. Uh, he was so concerned to try to knit the party together somehow, uh, which, of course, he failed to do. You know, it's one of the lost opportunities. The Vietnam War really uh, ended the Democratic Party's dominance in, in American uh, politics. So the Voting Rights Act of 1965, as you say, caused this white backlash, especially turning the white South Republican. The last Democrat to carry the South was Jimmy Carter in 1976. And now, now there's a white man's party. A majority of whites have voted Republican for the last 50 years. Uh, and then there's the party of everybody else, the Democrats. What can you tell us about this? The Republicans are the white Christian party. Now, you know, they picked up gains among Latinx people in the last election. Some votes among, picked up some votes among African-Americans and Asian-Americans. But basically, it's overwhelmingly a party of white Christians, especially away from both coasts. But, you know, if you can unite that group, which is still a majority of the population, you can do pretty well, especially with the way the Senate is organized. Uh, and... So many predominantly white states, of course, have the same number of senators as uh, states like California and New York. At the same time, the Democrats are a broader coalition uh, racially uh, in terms of class as well and education. But uh, that makes it difficult, I think, for Democrats to agree uh, on what they stand for and to agree on one leader who they all uh, get behind. That's uh, also uh, been a problem. Uh, I think the Democrats do best when they promote uh, universal programs, when they devote programs that uh, the large majority of Americans can benefit from. Social Security, Medicare, uh, national health insurance, uh, minimum wage, and um, aid to education. Uh, some of the programs in the Build Back Better bill, omnibus bill, which of course is not, is not going to pass because of two senators, uh, Democratic senators not willing to do away with the filibuster for this bill. But in the end, you know, to become a majoritarian party, which of course the Democrats always want to be, that's how you win elections on an ongoing way. I think you have to advance uh, majoritarian programs. It doesn't mean you can't talk about other programs as well. Uh, you have to talk about racial justice. You have to talk about gender justice. But the programs that you put out front, I think, and that you try to get people, uh, especially in this, the swing voters in the middle of the electorate, aren't sure any given election which party they're going to vote for. I think those are the programs, the, the, the universal programs that will win them over. 
And that is, unfortunately, a two-party system, how power is won. And the Democrats' next big chance to restore an FDR 1936-type strategy came with the financial meltdown of, nine, of 2007 and 8, which led to the electing of Obama and another Democratic sweep of Congress. Democrats gained eight Senate seats. There were two independents, so they had 59 seats in the Senate. We said... It's 1936 all over again. It's 1964 all over again. Obama can be the new FDR. Uh, and then he put all his capital into the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Was that a mistake? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, I go back and forth on that. He wanted to do one big thing. And uh, the ACA, at least as originally drawn up, was one big thing. And of course, it's proved to be popular. It's still on the books. And it's a uh, you know, it's a step towards uh, what you and I would like, which is, you know, national health insurance, Medicare for all in one form or another. And I think uh, American social policy doesn't usually operate with one huge, massive, you know, reform. Um, even Social Security didn't cover a lot of people when it was first passed in the mid-1930s. Right. And so I think it was a good idea to pass uh, um, Obamacare. Part of the problem, though, was that there was no big movement behind it, uh, as there was for example, behind Social Security. Uh, a lot of people, even more Democrats, wanted some sort of help for people who were older. There were all kinds of movements to do that before Social Security passed. Similarly, the Wagner Act, National Labor Relations Act in, in, in 1935, uh, giving the government you know, power over running union elections and uh, uh, punishing employers for unfair labor practices. There was a huge union movement that was surging, uh, which, which made that possible. That wasn't true for Obamacare. That's one of the reasons I think why it was difficult to pass, because there wasn't a real pressure on a lot of people, even Democrats, in many places to pass it. Uh, and also, I think uh, Obama lost a chance to be um, the kind of left-wing populist that, uh, that FDR was in many ways. Uh, you know, he believed, he believed in his famous uh, speech in the 2004 Democratic Convention in Boston, uh, where he introduced himself to most Americans, talked about there's no red America, no blue America. He, was, he believed in his heart, I think in compromise, in bipartisanship, in, in bringing Americans together across these lines. And, you know, Republicans weren't buying it. <laughs> and uh, it took them a long time to realize that. By the time he realized it, it, the Democrats had lost their majorities. One of the most striking changes in the party system over the last century is the way women have ended up as Democrats and men have ended up as Republicans. I think that it, it's hard to remember the last time a Democratic candidate won a majority of male voters, certainly not in the last 50 years. There's this sort of gendering of our politics, whereas the politics of caring is feminine and the politics of personal responsibility is, is masculine. So the Democrats rely on turning out women. Is this our future? I mean, as long as there is a gender split uh, culturally uh, in our country. Uh, some would argue biologically, you know, between people who have children and people who don't. Issues like abortion are going to be big issues. Uh, women, of course, are more pro-choice uh, than they are pro-life. Uh, men are more 50-50, depending on the polls. Uh, women are active in both the pro-life and pro-choice movements. But I think that issue does tend to, to help Democrats as well. So, you know, as long as those, as quote, women's issues uh, are seen as issues that Democrats more, care more about, uh, I think the gender split will exist. But it really didn't begin to happen until the 1960s. Before then, actually, women voted more Republican than men did because they were more conservative uh, and there were uh, many fewer of them were in labor unions. Uh, and, that, and most people in labor unions voted Democratic at the time. So you end your book in Las Vegas on election night in 2018 at Caesars Palace Hotel. 
wonderful finale. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, actually, uh, full disclosure, my son, Danny, was the uh, campaign manager for the Democrat running for the Senate, uh, Jackie Rosen, who was elected in 2018. So I, I, I don't usually hang out at Caesar's Palace, though. You know, <laughs> the uh, center of the Democratic Party uh, in Las Vegas, and really the engine of the Democratic Party in the state, is, is a culinary workers local which is mostly in, in Las Vegas and Reno, the big you know, casino and entertainment uh, tourist centers uh, in Nevada. And, and they are quite a remarkable union. Uh, they, first of all, they have, you know, something like 50,000 members. Uh, they represent almost all the workers in the major casinos and hotels in Las Vegas, and most of them in Reno as well. They have a great healthcare plan. Uh, they have plans to teach, you know, people English. A lot of a lot of the workers are immigrants uh, from lots of other countries, though majority are Latinx uh, from one country or another, Latin America. Uh, but they also may have managed to work out this uh, quite <laughs> amazing plank in their provision, I should say, in their contracts with the major hotels in Las Vegas, where they get paid leave for a couple of weeks during election campaigns to go canvas for candidates. Uh, that's quite remarkable. I don't know any of the union in America that has that provision in their in their contract. Maybe others do. I just don't know of it. And of course, that means that they are really uh, essential to Democrats winning in Nevada. And Nevada is a swing state. It's a purple state. Uh, Democrats have been winning it in the last few elections, but Republicans won it for a long time under Nixon and Reagan. They won it pretty easily. Um, and so Harry Reid, the late uh, majority leader, former majority leader of, uh, of the Democrats, sort of cobbled together this connection between the Democrats and the culinary workers in Nevada about 20 years ago. And uh, it's held up until now. And that's the kind of thing I think Democrats need more of. They need, first of all, unions have to grow and, and uh, to help working people generally and also to help Democrats because uh, unions tend to uh, support Democrats and tend, Democrats tend to support union demands. Um, especially when unions are strong, as they are in Las Vegas and Nevada generally, but also because that connection to the working class population, organized working class population, is really essential to rebuild, I think, a majority coalition. Because most Americans, after all, are working class. They did not graduate from college. Uh, they have jobs, earning wages, and that should be the future of the Democratic Party. Michael Kazin, his new book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. Michael, thanks for talking with us today. This was great. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. 
With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.